Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is Charlie Puth to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced the album Charlie. Charlie Puth is a singer, songwriter, and producer from Rumson, New Jersey. Starting piano lessons with his music teacher mother at the age of four, his formal training followed. In high school, he studied jazz piano in the Manhattan School of Music pre college program, and his naturally inquisitive nature led him to begin writing and recording songs of his own. After his high school years, he went on to study music production and engineering at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Posting music on his YouTube channel, Charlie's Vlogs, his cover of Adele's Someone Like You went viral and caught the attention of Ellen DeGeneres, who in 2011 signed him to the label 1111. Although no records materialized, Charlie began to collaborate with artists including Pitbull and Bonnie McKee, but it was in 2015, with his major label debut on Atlantic Records, that he began to break into the pop mainstream. His collaborations on singles with Megan Trainer, Marvin Gaye, and Wiz Khalifa, See You Again, both became multi platinum selling across the globe, with See You Again setting the record for most worldwide streams in a week and earning nominations for a Golden Globe and three Grammys, including Song of the Year. Alongside his rapid rise to global pop star, Charlie began to work on his debut album, releasing Nine Track Mind in January 2016. The album reached number six on the UK album charts, with the track We Don't Talk Anymore featuring Selena Gomez continuing his streak of global multi platinum selling records. His second album, 2018's Voice Notes, earned him his fourth Grammy nomination. Alongside his own music, Charlie has co written and produced hits for artists including Justin Bieber, John Legend, and Katy Perry, among many others. He was also featured on records from Calvin Harris, Elton John, and Gabby Barrett. After months of fan anticipation and teasing via TikTok, in January 2022, Charlie released Light Switch, the first single from his third studio album, Charlie. Once again, fully demonstrating his skills as a vocalist and producer, the album is jam packed with expertly crafted earworms, giving another masterclass in catchy, polished pop. Today, I'm here at the bridge at Maloko's HQ, and I'm joined by Charlie. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Charlie Be Quiet. Charlie, be quiet, don't make a sound You got to lower the noise a little bit now If she knows you're in love, she's gonna run, run away I'm not making the same mistake Won't be putting my heart on display I'll just water my feelings down I'm not going out looking dumb Telling all my friends how you're the one Those words never leave in my So that is Charlie Be Quiet from the album Charlie by Charlie Puth. And I'm very pleased to say that Charlie Puth is sat with me here in Morocco Studios in London. Charlie, great to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. It's a really exciting thing that we're going to do today. I'm really yeah. excited about it. So uh, we're going to explore the album Charlie. Yes. And in a way, it's great starting with Charlie Be Quiet because it seems like a message to self, but it could it also is. be something that maybe people have said to you <laughs> over the years as somebody wants to make noise and make music. It is a message to myself and it's quite literally, you know, like when you can't go to sleep and 
you have uh, your to-do list repeating over and over in your mind, and it seems like the decibel level of that is higher than usual and it's not allowing you to go to sleep. I, I tried to mimic that throughout the actual production, which is why uh, in the pre-chorus, I, I, uh, me and uh, Manny Mariquin, who mixed the record, took the master one decibel level up. So the pre-chorus is one decibel louder than the actual verse. And then the chorus, uh, the front half of the chorus is one decibel lower than the back half of the chorus. So it's supposed to mimic your mind um, when you can't sleep. And yes, you're right. That is a message that I would say to myself to be quiet and just not maybe overthink everything. Yeah. And and it seems with this album that in a way this is reinventing Charlie Puth. No, this is you being you at the most you you could possibly be in a way. That's why you call it Charlie. It's the most me album ever and um it extends outside of the music as well i I found out that being the most me ever works for me and uh not putting this uh facade of like oh i'm a cool artist I, i have to go away for a year and make music in private and not involve people in the process I, I i think i over involve people in the i overshare now that's the theme of the year is oversharing yeah interesting i mean there are probably a few different causes for that but one of them is the pandemic and the idea that you'd kind of come to a point where you couldn't go and do the things that you were meant to be doing which was maybe recording and performing right but you decided that you would reach your audience in a different way by using tiktok yeah and sharing what was going on in your life musically with people who were interested on TikTok. And that seems key to the evolution and creation of this record. It is. It was instrumental in it. And it's not like I'm actually seeking for musical approval through the people that watch the content online about the making of the songs. I'm not, you know, it would be a publishing nightmare trying to write a song with millions of people at once. But there really is a difference. Like when you're in, that's why a lot of artists have their friends in the recording studio because sometimes if you can't nail a verse or you're just with yourself for the whole day, it's nice to have other people come in and just sit down on the couch and if they're excited about something, it makes you want to uh, make them excited about the next part that you might not have nailed before. So the internet was my studio entourage. Yeah, great way to bring that in because obviously it, it presents a series of problems in a way you know mm-hmm. the way that it's crowded into our lives and taken over our yeah. lives but to be able to turn it around and, and make it work for you mm-hmm. is the ideal it really. works for me and hopefully i remember when youtube came out in 2005 i made my first account in 2006 and i was going to school at eastman school of music in uh, rochester new york and i had this little laptop and i made my my YouTube account, and I noticed that there were very few musicians on the platform. It was Soldier Boy and Chris Brown, and I think Chris Brown's was um, the label that he was signed to at the time was very ahead of the times, and they made him a YouTube channel early, so he wasn't even really making his own content. I'm pretty sure, but I was so fascinated with um, the Atlanta-based artist Soldier Boy and how he was making his own DIY-based content, and then I saw this other record producer, Ryan Leslie, was doing the same thing and involving people in his process but making it like a reality tv show like he'd call up guitar center uptown and he was living in harlem and he'd call guitar center and have a messenger come over and he'd document the process of him driving to the guitar center and dropping off the mini trombone that he'd end up using on a recording and it made it fascinating documenting the process of uh, finishing an album or a body of work and me at the time being 16 i'd was in jazz school and anytime I would bring up pop music to 
my classmates, they would bah humbug me and just tell me to focus on jazz. But I just became obsessed with learning what I needed to learn in school and bringing it back to the internet and kind of weaving it within pop music. And hopefully one day people would want to watch me as well craft a poppy jazz song. Yeah. So it's that YouTube for me back then is TikTok for maybe a 16 year old kid now. Yeah. So you were an early adopter of this thing and, and interested in the whole process and, and the way that you could use that. And that clearly has fed so well into your development. But the interesting thing is the way that you've combined a formal education mm-hmm. alongside trying to embrace and be on top of those developments. And you've brought the two together so well, which we're going to be exploring in this podcast today, I hope. And we're going to look at three songs from the Charlie album. Yeah. The first of them is Light Switch. Yes. So before we start digging into it, maybe we'll have a, a blast of the master. Yes. Um, so we get an idea of, of what you ended up blast with. Blast of the master. There, here's how the song begins. Very atmospheric. Just a drum beat and a little pad. A little pause. Yeah. Why you calling at 11.30 when you only want to do me dirty? But I hit right back because you got that, that, yeah. Pre-chorus. Cheeky. <laughs> so that's how it ended up after all the creative decisions that you went on. How did it start? It started with the idea that I wanted to have a song with a sound effect in it. I just didn't know what the sound effect was going to be at the time. When you watch a Broadway play or when you watch Tom and Jerry, we'll start with the Tom and Jerry example. There's all those um, uh, animated cartoons and still today, I think a little bit less today, but animated cartoons and especially the ones that I grew up with in the 90s and the ones that preceded it always with every body movement of the character with every, you know, pie hitting the person's face, there was a sound effect. If it's the mouse tiptoeing across the kitchen floor to avoid being seen by someone, it was bling, 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 like a pizzicato string going bling, 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 bling. Music was involved in every movement. And I would see that in cartoons and in Broadway plays. I remember seeing Hairspray in 2002 in New York, the first Broadway play I saw and uh, when Tracy would walk over to her boyfriend's place it was the same thing like when she was trying to be inconspicuous it was the music in the background it would be played live to mirror the the mystery of it and I was always uh intrigued why there that, that wasn't more prevalent in pop music you'd hear on the radio so it started off with that thought and I wanted to add a song like that to my catalog I toured with the idea of a door shutting and you know signifying something happening behind that door but it felt a little i I think a lot why a lot of people don't make songs like this is because it could go really well or viciously cheesy and i was uh i couldn't sleep one night i think i had like i accidentally had the the caffeinated espresso before bed and i said to myself i wish i could this is how most songs of mine start i just talk to myself and i I said to myself i really wish i could just turn my mind off if i had a light switch i could just turn my mind off and then when i said that i well i woke up the next day went on the treadmill and 
had the rhythm in my mind. If I had a light switch, I didn't turn off my brain like this. Switch this. Then I was like, well, maybe it shouldn't be a an up-tempo record. Maybe it's a, like a, an emotional thing. And maybe the light switch is just a sound effect with lots of reverb and it's part of the rhythm. If I had a light switch, I'm going to turn my mind off like this. And then it became kind of cathartic and annoying. So I had that in mind and I had the rhythmic spirit in my mind that people hadn't been outside and probably want to dance, most likely. So I went back to the original thought, which was to make it fast. And I had the drum beat. And I was like, how do I mimic that snare, that that like uh, old dirty bastard kind of Wu-Tang snare? And the best I could recreate was this. And there's some velocity to that snare. So it's like, and so how is that created? Is that created by your mouth, or is that created that is, by that, that something is, else? That, that's from a Thomas Petten drum kit, and I just, I was just going through the classic producer, you know, go through all the snares, and that's the snare I found. And I found that when I let off the release, it sounded a little bit uh, tighter, like a snare that like Puff would use on a Biggie record. And then when I'd uh, hold down the note, it would have a longer release. So short, long. So I, was this the first thing that you put down for this that song? That was the first then, right? thing I put down for this song. Still not knowing that I would end up using the, uh, the light, switch, w- light switch sound effect. Mm. I just hadn't dawned on upon me yet. So then I added this kick, which I think I got out of an Oliver kick. But the most important thing when I'm building a track is to have velocity in even like the dullest of instruments. Like even if we isolate this kick here, there's... I have four different kick tracks going, so I want the kick to... If you listen closely, it's not just the same kick. It's... Yeah. So it adds a little bit of uh, of depth to it. So you have yeah. that for the kick and the snare. This is the first two things I added. It breathes a little bit rather than it just Makes being, it more human. Makes it, it more human. More, makes it more... As if somebody is actually playing that and they're, they're using their foot in a different way each time. You know? Even though they're really not. And it's just me yeah, putting yeah. <laughs> a, with yes. like a little idea in my head and then going right on the grid on Pro Tools. And oh, there's this Sade song that has this Casio drum loop, which is this right here. I can't remember the name of it offhand, but that's a free of charge loop that came off of a Casio keyboard. And... Once I had the kick and the snare, I heard the chord progression in my mind, and I wanted it to feel like stepping out uh, Joe Jackson. And I knew it was going to be an E-flat minor, so I needed the minor third and the the six to be highlighted in another. I, when I sometimes will start with the drum tracks like this, but I want them to be diatonic musically. So I have an F sharp and a C sharp being highlighted in this little Sade drum loop, this Casio Sade drum loop. Boop, boop, boop. Da, 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 which is, of course, famously how that TikTok started. One if there was a song that started off like, perfect fifth, F sharp and C sharp, but really highlighting the E flat minor, F sharp major, D flat major, A flat minor. So this, I have these three things. And once I had that, I just, I heard the melody in my head. You turn me on like a light switch. But I, I knew I needed to uh, pause to make room for the light switch. You turn me on like a light switch. 
and then I inserted the light switch, which I, I put a little Poltec on it to give it a little bit of a beef. Uh, the UAD Poltec, which is pretty similar to the uh, the original Poltec, but it just gave it some beef under it, and I wanted it to sound like it was part of the drum section. Light switch. You're moving your and did you around. record your own light switch or did you find that sign? It, it was a free of charge sample that I yeah. found, but, um, you know, like the Ryan Leslie days of YouTube, you kind of make it like a reality show. And I pretended that I recorded it in uh, Conway Recording Studios. And right. that actually ended up being the light switch on the front cover of the single art, which is yeah. funny. Isn't it, isn't it funny how um, with those kind of home appliances, with light switches, as an example, you know, people have been trying to evolve them so they don't make a sound. <laughs> and yet here you are valuing the sound and probably assessing sounds of light switches as, as you were switching them I, all I, off. I like classic sounds and, and it sounded like a classic light switch sound you'd hear mm. in a cartoon. A very, like you go to Home Depot and get a, a light switch and that's the classic sound of that. So I have, I have the sound effect and I have diatonic musical drum parts. So now when I add an actual melodic musical part, it'll sound even more vibrant. And I think this is the... That's a fake guitar from the contact library. Dun, 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 dun. All the parts, they don't step over each other. Like one of my biggest pet peeves when I used to play in bands was that all the band members would try and outplay each other mm. and uh, step on each other's feet. And I was always trying to just blend in and make everybody sound good together. So I guess that's the same approach I take with producing a record. The next thing I added was this uh, Lewis Bell used this in a Post Malone record, and he told me it was an Oberheim synth, and I downloaded the Oberheim synth, and this was the first one that popped up, so I thought it was fate, so I used it. So, well, it's like a womp womp sound. So you have two musical parts, you have three drum parts, and now it was time to add the bass. I asked my friend Ian Kirkpatrick what bass he used on the record Don't Start Now by Dua Lipa, and he told me it was just another, it was a P bass from uh, the Native Instruments contact library, so I just used the... I just used that exactly and put a little bit of a bit crush on top of it. And these are all the most important parts, I'd say the most important parts together that make up the, the backbone of the record. And how long is this whole process taking you? Because obviously you're talking about it and it's, yeah. it's, it's all moving really quickly. It's just as quick. It, wow. it, it, 40 minutes, the right. track was done. And then it was all about fine tuning after that. If I don't get the track done in like 30 to 40 minutes, I will move on, which is why what happens in my head is super important. I dislike spending hours on a beat because the song is the most important part. And if there's no song, I'm just making a nice, clean sounding beat. Like I legitimately do not know how to sit down and make beats. I started in the music industry through hip hop sessions. And I think the artist would always be dismayed when I would come in with a my pro tools and not just be able to like whip up a beat really quickly. I have to really sit with it in my head and really feel what someone's gone through emotionally. Usually that person's me. Uh, and then it's just, yeah. And, and so, I mean, in terms of getting the track, as you've explained it, how finished is that in terms of bridges and, and all that kind of stuff? I mean, it would the whole map of it be structured then and there. And then 
is it just a case of trying to work out what your vocal melody is going to be and, and what lyrics you want to use? Or or does that then restructure what you come up with in those 30, 40 minutes? It sounds pompous, but I have it all mapped out in my head. And I knew that I had the most important instrumentation and I would, you know, I would layer the fake guitars with the real guitars a little bit later. I knew that there had to be a slowdown part. I still had cartoons in my head that this would be like I almost wanted the music video to be a cartoon. And you know when Popeye didn't eat his spinach and he needs to go save his lady and then he eats the spinach and then his muscles get bigger. Yeah. I wanted to make the musical part of that and I didn't have all the lyrics yet, but I was when I was making the babble, I said walk away and like I just want to walk away. It's like oh, just throw the towel over your shoulder and walk into the sunset you lost the football game kind of scenario painting in my head and i wanted to make the musical parallel to that and slow the whole song down so the song is 184 bpm one two three four one two three four and and then i just wanted to suddenly just like every time that i stay i'm gonna die. I'm going to go home, but then I am back at 184 BPM. So that's what this is right here. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And of course, that makes a lot more sense when you have uh, the vocal played in. You turn me on like a dice when you turn me on, then you're back in it. Yeah. It's theatrical. A lot of these songs on this album are theatrical, but I think this one is the most theatrical out of the bunch. Yeah. And then in terms of how your voice would sound, because obviously, you know, you've got some treatments on there and your approach to that and to making those decisions, is that still all in your head? I mean, it, Charlie, it's all in your head and, you, and you're managing to get it down really quickly. It's amazing. What, what, if I have a whole completed song in my head, mm. I'm able to get it down. I'm fortunate that I can get it down really quickly. And it's just a matter of extracting what's in my head and just racing to to get it down into the pro tools i knew that you know i knew that i wanted it to be an e flat minor and i wanted it to be high in the chorus the next time i'll probably sing a little bit lower because these songs are pretty hard to sing live <laughs> when they're when they're this high you turn me on like a light switch when you're moving your body around and around now i don't want to fight this no. you know how to just make me want you turn me on like a light switch when you're moving your body around You can hear all the vocal splices and everything and then you just double You turn me on like a light switch When you're moving your body around and around And is this all done in that moment then of creation for the, this the, song? The, the scratch is right. and the, um, What have we just heard then? Is that the scratch vocal no, or is you, that that's the finished vocal? You, well, what's funny is I always This was actually technically the scratch vocal You turn me on like a light switch Just that and then everything else I took my time and Right. It took two hours to like make the perfect vocal. Since I've made this album, I've become a little bit less precious about vocals being perfect. I don't even like line tune, uh, auto tune most of them now. I just kind of just put the insert on and just let it, it feels a little bit more human. But here I was uh, obsessed with making the like pristine, shiny, perfect vocal. But that first sentence in the chorus was the first take. And I guess that's the same thing with See You Again too. The, the whole chorus was just a demo take and with We Don't Talk Anymore. So I'm always happy when the title of the song is the demo take. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. I mean, you're very lucky in that you're very gifted in that you can use your voice as an instrument yeah, so precisely and know exactly what you want and what you're doing and how to do that. Well, you can imagine my frustration growing up and not feasibly being able to like actually hit the notes, but having them 
in my head perfectly, but having to physically like really train my voice to get there. And I attribute my vocal stylings a lot to autotune. I taught myself how to sing through autotune. Like the first time I put my voice through it and I heard what I heard in my head and not like my imperfect nasally trailing off voice. It was an emotional experience for me because I could finally perfect my voice and have it sound the way I had it sound in my head. Yeah. And then your approach to that was to then try and be able to do that yourself, not using autotune, is yes. that what you're saying? And I'm getting I'm still working on that, but I'm I'm closer than I was a year ago to it. I use way less of it now on the new new stuff that no one's heard yet. And I think people kind of would like to hear that a little bit more. Not everything has to be so like I when you hear Stevie Nicks sing Landslide live, I almost find it to be better than the actual master recording when she sang it a little bit off key at some points. And, mm. and people even, uh, I saw a video of her singing that song and people sing the, uh, the out of tune riff that she does famously on a live version. And they were dismayed when, when she didn't sing it right back to them in the way that they knew it. So people like imperfections. They just don't know that they like imperfections. I'm learning to like imperfections yeah. too. Well, I mean, as a perfectionist musician, you know, you're striving to master your skills and reach that perfection. But obviously the emotion of it all, the the meaning and the feeling and the communication comes from so many different things. I'm just fascinated by this idea that you've used autotune to teach yourself to sing perfectly. Mm-hmm. And presumably is that because also that's something you can do in private? You know, you can do yes. with yourself and not have to, because you, you, you know, you've gone through much training on different instruments and, and you know, you've, you're perfectly prepared to put in the hours and do the learning and listen to the teacher. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, working on your voice can be such a an open thing where you're really putting yourself on the line. Well, it's annoying because if the piano goes out of tune, you call somebody up who knows how to tune a piano and then you have a perfectly tuned 441 piano. If your voice goes out of tune, there's no one to call up. You can't, no one can, that sounds gross, you tune, go in your throat and tune your voice. You got to learn how to reach your tone. And I'm still, I'm a better singer than I was five years ago. I'm fully aware that I'm not the best live singer. I have a lot of things, smoke and mirrors going on in the background. I got a little bit of tune running at like 64 just to gently massage the tone because people's ears have gotten so perfect pitch nowadays. But you also, it's a fine line. You don't want it to be so, unless that's what you're going for in an artful way, like a T-Pain thing, Mm -hmm. Travis Scott thing, but you don't want it to be so perfect where no one can relate to it. We relate to mistakes. Even, I mean, these hi-hats are obviously perfectly timed. But my rule is when producing a record, if you have something perfect, you have to couple it with something that's imperfect. And Jan's guitar here went slightly out of tune, but it made it wider. Just like it's it, to me, it doesn't bother me. I actually prefer things to be out of tune sometimes, especially when they're going against something so quantized and rigid. It kind of balances it all out. And these oohs are super perfect. But it's actually printed within it. There's like an F sharp that's not so tuned, and mm. it just kind of makes it you know what i'm saying yeah yeah totally totally it is and it, it brings the humanity yeah of it all so in terms of i mean you, you've outlined that you worked this process so quickly you know that you had your song light yeah. switch pretty much done 30 to 40 minutes working yeah. away now all the sounds that you've created there 
for the finished version that we get on the record, yeah. did you go and re-record all of those with other musicians or did you just stick with what you've got? All I really did was re-record the fake guitars. I didn't take them away. The, the, again, these are the fake guitars. I mean, it, it sounds fake, but you uh, then have a real guitar player play on top of it. Real and fake guitar. That's like five different guitar layers too. But it sounds like it's nothing. It sounds just like a guitar player playing it. And you honestly can't really even, an average listener is not gonna be able to tell that there's five different guitar layers there. But when you take one out, it sounds like there's something missing. And this is with it in it. It's the, the imperfections that make it wider and feel more full. Yeah. You make it look so easy, Charlie. Yeah. Well, it is. <laughs> it's, it's just like playing in a band. You don't want to step on yeah. each other's toes and you want, it's all about the listener at the end of the day. You want to, there's certain frequencies. That's why certain chord progressions, like when you listen to an Adele song, when you listen to someone like you, that classic A major, E major, F sharp minor, D major, just it's been used in so many songs, but it's a push and a pull. And there's frequencies that can really touch someone emotionally without a lyric. And then when you add a groundbreaking lyric, like in that song, you have two groundbreaking things happening at once. Like you're going to get like an evergreen record that double pulls at someone's emotion. So if I can accomplish that with no lyrics, um, not that I'm saying this song is anything like someone like you, but if I can evoke an emotion without a lyric and just through pure sounds, it's going to make me super excited to really nail the lyric and get that double emotional pull. Yeah, fascinating. Maybe we should hear The Master again and we can move on and explore one of your other songs. Oh, absolutely. It's the chorus. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Is Light Switch by Charlie Booth from Charlie. And the next song we're going to look at is That's Hilarious. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before. And if you haven't, then let me fill you in as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. 
One of our favorite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. This episode is supported by Museversal, an amazing new service for working with session musicians remotely. If you use session musicians or would like to, but it's been too expensive or hard to organize, this is for you. And we have a special offer for any Tape Notes listeners, 25% off for the first three months, and you get to skip the wait list. But more on that in a moment. I've got David from Museversal here to tell us all about it. Hello, David. What is Museversal? Hey, John, thank you so much for having us on here. Appreciate it a ton. Museversal is an online remote recording studio for artists, producers, composers, anyone who's a music creator to work with session musicians remotely. In a couple of clicks, you can go on and you can book a session with a drummer or a guitar player, a piano player, you name it, they're on the platform. And so the way that it works is all of the sessions are hosted over live stream. So all of the, you know, revisions and feedback and all of the different little, you know, hey, um, would you mind, you know, moving to the ride symbol for the fourth bar? Or would you mind, you know, finger plucking instead of using a pick? You know, all of those types of creative choices can happen quite literally as if the musician is in the room just done over live stream. Yeah. It sounds amazing. And in a way, the clue is in the name, Museversal. It means that whether you're a beginner or whether you're somebody with a lot of experience, you can still get access to the same kind of level of musicianship and creativity. Yeah, it's amazing because it allows the music to have expression on it and musicianship that, you know, if I'm sitting in my basement playing piano versus a piano player that's played for, you know, Jay-Z or has been playing for 25 plus years, the material that comes out of that is going to sound night and day. What does it cost? So the service is $200 a month US and included in that is all of the sessions. So there's no additional fees or anything. You know, you get to book as many sessions as you can have per month. To put it in perspective, the average user probably books about five to seven sessions per month. But we actually have some users booking 10, 12, 15 sessions per month. So I mean, you can do the math on 200. The, the deal really is awesome. And it, it allows people to work with incredible musicians and, and, you know, not break the bank. It sounds great. Can you remind us what the offer is for Tape Notes listeners? Well, look, we're so thankful um, that you guys are having us on here. What we would love to do is offer 25% off per month for their first three months. And then the other cool part is they get to skip our wait list. So, you know, we usually run a wait list. It's about two weeks long. But in this case, you know, finding us through this episode, you could have a session as early as tomorrow. Fantastic. And to get the offer, all you have to do is find the link in any of our recent episode show notes. David, thank you so much for speaking to us. And maybe one day we'll be talking about a piece of music that's been created using Musiversal. That would be incredible. We cannot wait for that day. The next song we're going to look at is That's Hilarious from Charlie by Charlie Puth. And Charlie is going to play us the master now. Here we go. Mm-hmm. 
Look how all the tables, look how all the tables have turned. Guess you finally realizing how bad you messed it up. Girl, you're only making, girl, you're only making it worse when you call like you always do when you want someone. You took away a year of my fucking life, and I can't get it back no more. So when I see those tears. Coming out your eyes, I hope it's me. Therefore, you didn't love when you had me, but now you need me so badly. You can't be serious. That's hilarious. Thinking I would still want you after the things you put me through. Yeah, you're delirious. That's hilarious. Now you put the heavy stuff. It is very heavy. That's hilarious, which is the opening song on the album. Yes, Charlie. And where does this come in the evolution of the record? So when you were creating Charlie, mm-hmm. and obviously you started um, creating things and doing things at home and showing them on TikTok and saying, "Hey, I'm doing this." Mm-hmm. But had you an idea at that stage about an album or what you wanted to do, mm-hmm. and was there a shape to it? You know, so when you started sharing with people. Had you already got a picture of what you were doing or not? You know, did that evolve as you started sharing and using TikTok to kind of, in effect, tell people what you're up to? Right. Well, this was actually the song that really started off the album. Hmm. The one song that I didn't right away take my phone out and document the process. This, I obviously, you can hear it in the the sound going through a tough time in my own life, and wanted to make a song that kind of spoke about that. In the past, uh, I had been told to kind of just make the happy pop songs, and I was made to believe that like no one was going to really take that much interest of what I was going through in my life. Good thing I didn't listen to those people, um, and went ahead and made this song. And I just sat down. The first thing I played was this little rose, and so with light switch, it was all about making the drum percussion melodic. Now I had. I wanted to start the record off with something melodic but sounded rhythmic, so all I did was just play a Rhodes and just put a little LFO tool, which is just a, a side chain, like a Nicky Romero side chain kind of thing. Has a little bit of in and out pulse. And just loop that over and over again, and just walked around my room and kind of thought about what I wanted to say, and there were times where it was so brutal what I was going through that it was almost funny you know like when something is just so painful that you just can't help but laugh and I thought that was an interesting concept to see the the comedy in even the toughest things that's what these chords were kind of uh, directing me towards so I had that looping over and over again I just pulled out a, an organ that I knew George Michael used off the D50 uh, synthesizer Sorry, that actually is not what that is. That is a contact church organ. I don't know why I thought that. And just had those, uh, it was almost like a David Foster production, very lush, and almost sounded like All By Myself by Celine Dion. So I thought, okay, well now I have to have something ugly because this album is all about exploring the beautiful and the ugly at the same time. So I was listening to a Diplo record um, with this artist Kaiza and it had this snare drum in it and I thought well how in the world am I gonna 
I like that snare drum, but like, how is it going to work with the beautiful rose? And it turns out it just did. I didn't have that planned out in my mind exactly, but I knew I wanted to couple something ugly and pretty at the same time. So that's what this sounds like. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, well, that's hilarious. That It sounds like a mistake. And then I thought, that's hilarious. It's a great song title. And when I said that, I just, I thought, what if I just, ha, ha, ha. That's hilarious. Ha ha. To make it because I think about a lot of the times I think about what these songs, how these songs are going to translate in a live setting. And I thought, well, one of my fans end up singing the finished product, the ha ha ha. And then I sing, that's hilarious. I love that little call and response thing that I have when I sing to like 10,000 people and they yeah. illuminate the ha ha ha's. And so those were the first two instruments that started off this record. Yeah. And this is the record that started off the record. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's a more emotional start for this you know yeah. the, the road starts to reflect the emotional turmoil that you were going through mm -hmm. and also the idea that you came across the idea of, of extremity being laughable yeah but then the sound ended up making you come up with that's hilarious and that was reflecting your idea that oh god things are just so awful they're ridiculous they're hilarious mm -hmm. you know it's, the two coming together yeah they're is, is but really that, nice. that, i think that's a sentiment that people can relate to there are, it's like when it rains it pours like when it, it's the, this song is the equivalent of having a bad day at work, getting having to stay an extra two hours for a meeting that you didn't want to stay for. The elevator is full of people when you're done at the end of the day. It's raining, and then a bird shits on your head. Like I was trying to make that musically, uh, but <laughs> but also you get to go back to your family, and you have maybe you have a nice car that you're driving in. It's just like annoying. Nothing there, and you're a healthy guy or a girl or whatever and but you just uh, <laughs> when a bird shits on you and you're you know you get ketchup on your white oxford it's not like a great day and it just happens to be monday this song is like musical monday yeah so of course i, I had the melody in my head and i got excited so i didn't want to sing it right away i just wanted to add a couple more things which is every producer's dream so i added this little sub which is just out of uh, this program called diva which is appropriate because it's a plugin that uses a lot of cpu let's hope the computer doesn't crash now because we said that and you have the sub and a little bit of you just distort it with this thing called decapitator from sound toys more of it mm. so these guitars here are very not distorted they're very clean actually so you have distorted and clean distorted and clean distorted and clean but those are not the guitars that i had started with i think if i go down here oh that guitar there so believe it or not that sound that's from splice that's from, i don't know what pack that's from but i just melodyne those guitars and i just loved how fucked up they sounded Da, 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 da. Pretty sure that's impossible to play on an actual guitar, but I had Jan record it uh, individually. So you have something super synthetic against my Steinway piano with that Rhodes and Beauty Beauty and Ugly. And my friend Matthias in Sweden recorded these beautiful strings. You took away a year. Which I put a little filter on. 
He did the strings on Love Me Like You Do, and he does everything for Max and that camp. Ugh. I just love how that classically goes together so well. A piano and some... This is a Juno. But now we've widened the session up massively mm -hmm. from you walking around your room, listening yeah. to the loop of the roads and wondering what you were hitting on and, and how to develop it. Oh, I uh, had to the suddenly whole involving people all over the world. Yeah, I had the whole chorus. That came at the end. I had the whole chorus in my head at this point. Mm -hmm. I was just having fun. I knew that the chorus was going to be this. You didn't love when you had me, but now you need me so badly. You can't be serious. That's hilarious. Almost, that sounds primal in a way. Maybe you just play with the. And you can hear it really, like my whole trick of raising the chorus up a decibel. It's completely lower before the chorus hits. Roads. I wanted it to sound like the seas parting and then coming back together. It's especially fun when you, you can almost feel the snare when you take it out too. But like the, you hear that little in the background against the snare, that little, that's me just like doing this. Right. And I pitched it down and put a little filter on it. And that little pre-shift before the snare really adds something. And this little, that little sound effect there you hear. You use white noise to, and I put a little chorus on the white noise. That layered with uh, the piano and the distortion, just it's, it, white noise is just like all the sound spectrum just together and just kind of fills up the whole palette. Yeah, and sense. and you coming up with those on the spot again? Yes. Yeah, and in in this spot where you're you're pacing around, having a, a think and trying to work out how you want to mm -hmm. shape the song. What's there? I mean, you're doing a lot in the box, as mm -hmm. it were. You're using a laptop, using all the effects that you can find there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, you are a musician who's trained on a musical mm -hmm. instrument. Do you surround yourself with those as well? Is this a home studio or is it just your bedroom? No, this what? is my home studio. And it was kind of at that, it was 2021. So it was still at a time where... Uh, you know, pandemic's not over, obviously, but it was like a really tense time where you couldn't have like 10 people mm. in a room. So it was just me surrounded by a bunch of vintage synthesizers and uh, my engineer on FaceTime when I forgot how to connect a patch bay. Right. Like, or why is Pro Tools crashing? Pro Tools never crashes. But I had him on FaceTime. Like, can you, how do I get the zooming in and out working on Pro Tools? Like, that's the extent of my entourage uh, yeah, in my home yeah. studio. But you have a Steinway there as well? Or, I, in, yeah. my, uh, in my living room. Right. My favorite piano ever, the Steinway D. And uh, that's what it, this sounds like here. But now, after all the distortion and all the side chain, you can't even, I might as well have used a plug-in. And I can obviously play those chords. I don't have to, 
you know, play a chord, run back to the system, hit record again, play the next chord. But I like sometimes not using my full training of what I know on the keyboard. And I want it to sound like I almost don't know how to play because it kind of adds something to um, the fucked upness about the record when it sounds choppy. This legitimately sounds choppy. And use the side chain as like a rhythmic element as well. There's something nice when you just record each chord and then put it right on the grid, even yeah. though you know how to do it. Yeah. I mean, in terms of training, how many years did you, I mean, you started learning piano at the age of four, four is yeah. that right? Mm -hmm. And then reading about your background, it sounds like you had a combination of formal and informal training and in that your mother is a music teacher. Yeah. And, and so she was able to teach you a lot. But then from quite a young age, you started going to do classes and going to do courses and signing up to particular programs. Mm -hmm. You know, throughout the course of your childhood, in effect, so all the time you were taking on more and more musical learning. Yeah. But I, fascinated by pop at the same time, fascinated by yeah. recording and production. And so exploring that on your own, really, until you got to Berkeley, where that became more of a formal education as it, well. Is it that was right? A, I, I've been fortunate enough to be around formal music education my entire life. I was just fascinated when I would leave school and I would hear people listening to their radio. And this was 2005, 2006 at the time. So if they hear, um, what's a record that came out during that time? If they heard Buttons by the Pussycat Dolls or uh, So Sick by Neo. Let's So Sick by Neo is a better example. That song was a big hit in 2006. And I would, I'd come out of Conservatory of Manhattan School of Music and I'd hear So Sick being played out of someone's Alpine stereo system really loudly with too much bass and everything of how they were perceiving music would be i would be taught that that's like incorrect you're supposed to listen to it at a medium volume and no synthesizers are allowed in classroom you have to use acoustic pianos and i'm listening i'm, I'm also in the middle i'm near columbia university i'm around a lot of culture and i'm wondering why my teachers are telling me that i can't use synthesizers and and I'm also wondering if they've heard the pop music that's popular right now because Mozart melodies are sprinkled everywhere throughout mm. in popular music. So that's, again, where my yearn to learn came from being in classical conservatory and finding out the differences and the similarities between pop music on the radio and classical music. And there's tons. And I guess that's what, when you listen to this That's Hilarious record, there's... A piano, but every classical piano teacher's nightmare distorting the shit out of a Steinway, a beautiful concert grand Steinway with uh, with strings, and uh, that's not proper. But it can be a pop record, mm. so I'm I was always fascinated with uh, non-school things, just as much as I was school things. Still am today. Yeah, but clearly you you were realizing that there's a disconnect here, and what they're teaching me is correct, but this other stuff works and communicates as well. And well, there's disconnects with everything in mm. life. That's yeah. that's how innovation happens. It's the yeah. people who find the middle ground and things that haven't been done yet. Some of the best music has been made by accident, by people who didn't even study music. And I definitely took note of that as well. Some of the best inventions in life were made by accident. And they're usually not happen on in a classroom. It's when your mind isn't like overthinking things and it just happens across, uh, yeah. on something out of pure passion.
But a big realization for you, you know, when you're going through that kind of formal education is realizing that, hang on a minute, it's not just about um, everything I'm being taught here. There's yeah. uh, so much more. I used to make my teachers so mad. I would be uh, playing a, a piece by Haydn or Clementi. I see it's written on the paper, but number one, I, I used to, <laughs> I pissed them off so much. I'd be like, how do you know that this is correct? Who published this? Or are there any Clementis or Mozarts running around? Like, how do we know that? I mean, we know where we know what Rachmaninoff is supposed to sound like because there's actual recordings of that 19th century and above. But if Mozart were here, would he be cringing? It, that, that's why I went back to Berkeley recently and I'm listening to teachers talk about how to write a song. There really isn't. Uh, it's controversial, like how to how to write a song. It's how to live your life and take things out of that and put it into a song. You can't really teach someone art, I don't think. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, obviously, in this conversation, we're finding out how you write a song and how sound, bits of sound, play alongside the emotional journey you're on at that moment or something that will entertain you. You're looking for inspiration in, in things that are funny or sad I, yeah. or you know, drawing on all of these different things, but pacing up and down the room and, and, and then going to the keyboard and going to the, to the laptop and laying things down, recording them in this room. Where is your home? Where is your, your space? I live in Los Angeles and I have a really, really nice home studio, which I, I, I can, I've always wanted to wake up. I've always had a situation, musical situation where I can wake up and just go to a piano where there when it was, a, whether I was living at my parents' house or college dorm room, been very fortunate that I could just jump to a piano right away. But middle of the pandemic, when it first started, it was the first time where I couldn't be around a bunch of musicians and say, hey, come over here and play this right away. So I truly had to do everything myself. I'm pacing around the room and I'm thinking, I want to get a gospel choir. I got to get everyone over. Well, this person doesn't feel comfortable being around two other people. This person has COVID. Like, I just need to make the choir myself right now. So this is where... I wanted it to sound like a like a schoolboy choir, like like in a cathedral. And there's even more of a an example of that. You see me a second to find it. There's a lot of that's me. Kind of looped over, and then you can't even really tell that it's there when you listen to the song. You have the 808 against my choir and it's kind of dry too and then when you put the roads which started off the record it's highlighting those top notes i'm mimicking the swells that mateus had done mm. and then it's everything that's right and wrong about classical music but in a pop sense as well hi-hats that are I took from a run DNC record and the guitar it sounds nice when you bring the choir up a little bit let me bring the choir up ever so slightly here it is And so if the record were to be like that, it sounds kind of soft, but when you add all the distorted elements and then the, the, the angriness of what I was at the time in the lead vocal, you have a completed, in my opinion, a completed record and the yeah. record that started off the whole Charlie album. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you mentioned drama earlier on, and there's a lot of drama in That's Hilarious. 
and yeah. and it's interesting because it kind of recalls various different kinds of music to me. You know, be it My Chemical Romance, or yeah. be it Charlie XCX, or Love Charlie Taylor XCX. Swift, or Queen. Like when you were isolating your own personal yeah. boy choir, yeah. that is yeah. the boy Charlie. Boy Charlie, um, yeah. you know that brings Queen into it, and it's interesting because it, it's kind of drawing all of those different things together, mm-hmm. but putting the pooth stamp on it in a way. Well, I didn't invent this stuff. I'm just incredibly yeah. impressed by the people that. Like, I'd say Freddie Mercury was the one that really highlighted it and brought it. Like, when you'd see uh, when you'd see Queen play Somebody to Love at Live Aid 1985, there were no Pro Tools tracks they had in the back. There was no click track. They just set up, like, 16 wedges, blasted them to hell, and they played as a band, like they would rehearse. But there were a lot of elements missing, a lot of overdubs missing, like Freddie's vocal, 18 times duplicated. You'd see it kind of classically done in the movie again, again duplicate the vocal again he wouldn't have those being played on tape it just there was a little bit um emptiness uh when they would play it live there were th- some things and some elements missing but their liveliness and the tempo changes and mm. the, the humanistic stuff would make up for that and i guess somebody loved freddie mercury and queen that's kind of what i was maybe subconsciously referencing when adding those vocals in against the strings and the piano. Yeah. It would be great to round off this song by building up through the parts, if it's possible. You know what's interesting? I'll play the lead vocal first, a very dry vocal. Look how all the tables, look how all the tables have turned. You have the roads. Even there, just the whole thing sounds rounded already. Church organ layered here. Took away a year of my Sounds like a funeral. Some keys. Little sign pad Juno to. So when I see those tears coming out There's a French horn in there somewhere. Kick drum. Sub under the kick drum. Distorted bass. Hi hats. Now you put the blame in. Now you put the blame Little in. Little guitar. Dun, dun. Trying to make me feel guilty for everything you've done. Percussive you're element. You're just another lesson. Like I don't even know what that's like. A... Don't give your heart to a girl who still got a broken one. You took away a year. Snare. From my fucking life and I can't get it back no more. Oh, more distorted elements and the ha ha ha's. Guitars and distorted bass. Cheeky little cymbal. You don't really hear it, but I just made it louder there so you can hear it. The little choir. And that's it. It's not a lot to it, really. Just really, every part is really important. And it's a short song, too. Two minutes and 25 seconds. Yeah, you pack an awful lot, I think, into it. I want people to be, like, overwhelmed when they Mm. listen to that. I want them to be, like, the Miramax guy, like, sitting in the chair, blasted with sound. I want people's hair to be, like, blown back when they hear this. Yeah.
Fantastic. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Yes. Um, that was That's Hilarious. The next song we're going to look at is Loser. Perfect. The next song we're going to look at from Charlie Puth's Charlie album is Loser. But before I get you to hit play, Charlie, no, I'm intrigued by this idea that you were brought up with this classical and jazz Mm-hmm. training yeah. you know, on the piano but also on other instruments too exploring and learning so much and you had a fascination with pop how did you decide pop was the thing for you and what is pop to you because especially if you're learning jazz piano and you're surrounded by jazz players jazz musicians and obviously you're going to end up playing an awful lot of different kinds of of jazz it's such a, a massive genre but what made you not go down that road of saying right I just want to play certain kinds of things. Well, I just think pop music is a way to reach more people. And I like being around a lot of people just as much as uh, being to myself. I I think uh, people are interesting. I think people have a way of describing similar things that everybody goes through in a different way. I think each individual person on this earth has a uh, could be a songwriter. They inadvertently will say cool things. So why wouldn't I want to surround myself with more interesting people in my social life? And why wouldn't I want to uh, limit myself musically to uh, one audience when I can still reach that audience, but reach another audience as well? Two birds of one stone um, kind of thing. And it's not knocking anybody who just wants to focus on jazz. Like there are a lot of successful jazz pianists that play at Village Vanguard and beautiful clubs like Birdland and New York and live in New York City and like have fabulous lives like doing what they love but I love that as well as playing for many many thousands of people in a pop music setting without selling my soul to what is perceived as selling your soul to pop music I think that you can I'm casting a wide net of uh, interesting reactions I really love people's reactions I started producing because of hip-hop so I wasn't just going to listen to hip-hop I was going to figure out a way to include hip-hop in my pop production as well yeah yeah i mean it's interesting because in some ways pop pulls on everything you know and so if a new style a new sound comes in and it connects with people pop will pull that in to its sound pop being this big big beast that is full of of many different people yeah um, but kind of in a way almost working as one one being in a strange way because it, it fascinates me how say you know left field genres get pulled into pop and then suddenly pop production becomes dominated by the new sounds of dubstep at one point or grime at one point or or trap at another point. And suddenly then you're hearing that on top 10 artists and those elements are there. And it's interesting how, you know, pop just eats everything (laughs) uh, to, to create something that will reach Lots of people. Yeah, and it'll dilute it at times. I yes, mean, there are there yeah. are indie folk that, you know, get down on pop music because they think the genre is lessening their, their one's uh, best-kept secret. But it's just people exploring different ways to express themselves. And sometimes the best way to express yourself is by uh, listening to something that you haven't heard and immersing yourself in a culture that that you're not super familiar with, like I said before. It's which is why when um I remember when was that Katy Perry record that Luke had produced, She's a Beast, I call her Karma. She you heard art out by Jeffrey Dahmer. That had a that was a like a Mike Will like trap beat turned pop beat with Juicy J and they put Juicy J on it to kinda of, as an ode to three six mafia, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, to balance out its, you know, singer, Katy Perry mm. at the time. 
that's the right way to do it. You don't want to steal from a particular genre and not credit the person and act like you came up with uh, it yourself if you take a little, like 2% of uh, what you learned from and maybe feature it on the record, you know, writing in the line notes uh, and make it apparent that you're appreciative of the, the derivative work. That's what I hope I I accomplished on this album as yeah. well. I certainly didn't invent this style of music. We all just kind of borrow and steal and twist. And it's the music is like putty and you make your own shape out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems that leaping from where you were educationally into the pop world could be difficult. You know, it's hard to jump in. And in a way, I suppose that's, you know, you've been working on that over the last few right. years. Well, it's all, how you, it's all how you convey the message. I mean, you've yeah. seen on TikTok, I just talk about music theory and now it's become this kind of cultural thing of people, you know, much to my dismay, sometimes like burping or farting and asking me what note it is. I mean, sure, if that's if that's how you're perceiving the message, great. I mean, at least you're learning music theory. I thought I always thought the best teachers made the lessons entertaining. And uh, maybe if I weren't doing what I'm doing now, I, I would be a, a teacher in a way. That's yeah. kind of the fun teacher that yeah. unbuttons their top two buttons. <laughs> and what have you found hardest to master in pop music? I'm not necessarily assuming that you have mastered it, right. but you're working on it all the time. That's the impression that we're getting. Yeah, it's a lifetime piece. You don't just get good at Moonlight Sonata and <laughs> never play it again. There's going to be a couple months where you don't play it and you you become a little rusty. It's, a, it's the smartest thing my piano teacher ever told me, one of my piano teachers, is that it's a lifetime piece of music. Everything you do is a lifetime piece of music. And I guess the hardest thing, the hardest thing to do in pop music is to constantly reinvent yourself and not sound like prior work for me at least i don't want to make a record another uh, attention 2.0 we don't talk anymore 2.0 i can certainly sing about similar things i mean the the lyrical content and that's hilarious when you put it up against attention it's not too unsimilar but my voice sounds different i had my nose fixed my septum aligned so my voice is actually a little bit wider than it was when i sing on attention i always just want to evolve like I'm working with a different producer, but I just happen to be the producer. And to do that, you have to be empathetic and open-minded and surround yourself with people, going back to what I was saying in the beginning. Yeah. Loser is the next song we're going to look at, and, and you're going to play as the Masters now? Yes, here it is. A flat minor. Oh, I'm such a loser. How'd I ever lose her? Oh, really, I must have been out of my mind. Now I am a Nursery rhyme melody, kind of. 
Like it's, it feels like a melody that's been around for a long time. Yeah, it has a, a kind of familiarity about it, I suppose, in a way, but it's not familiar. Yeah. So that's Loser. I mean, that's different, again, to the other songs that we've heard. Uh, is the process the same? Yeah, it, it started off with the lyric, with the title. All these songs started off with the title. And I was fascinated when you sang the words, or when you even said the words, Lose Her. Uh, it may be different in the UK, but if I... As an American say, lose her, lose her. It sounds like loser, like I'm loser. It sounded mm. like loser. But it's a little play on words. It, it's isn't a it, little bit of a play on words, but it rhymes and it happens mm. to sound like one word if you say two words. And I was fascinated by that. And then when I had that title in my mind, I just I wanted a ring around the rosy kind of melody. That's right. like a like the copyright's been expired because it's been a hundred years. And like dinner around the rosy, dun dun dun. Um, nursery rhyme like and I had the na, 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 like a cello would play it na, 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 and I wanted the melody to outline the chord progression so I had a flat minor D flat minor E major uplifting E major B major B F sharp over B flat and it originally started out with um these chords let me just find it here started out like this but it sounded kind of like kumbaya lame so i was listening to this record called lose yourself to dance which pharrell wrote with daft punk but it's no mystery that this is heavily nodded to something that daft punk would do very inspired by them and i wanted it to start with this uh, like all through the night cindy lopper all through the night where the, the arpeggio the juno arpeggio would go for the entire time but it's actually a manually done arpeggio because it changes. Put the acoustic guitar, so instead of this acoustic guitar, I knew I was gonna keep that for the chorus, but I decided to play it down a little bit. In the song, I Want It That Way, that Max and Rami produced for the Backstreet Boys, I loved how they, um, they turn the EQ up on the guitar strings like so you'd almost you'd hear a little bit of the guitar chord but you really hear the strings so that's why you hear a lot of the strings and less of the chord here kind of Swedish in a way electric and acoustic not really much to it and then put the filter on the Yeah, that's, there's no root note there. It's just F sharp, B, and, and D sharp on the guitar. Hi-hats. And mind you, I had the whole concept in my head. I had the whole, oh, I'm such a loser. How'd I ever lose her? So once I had that, I just kind of was like, I'll, I'll figure out the rest of the melodies later. Let's just have some fun and come up with the parts just like in That's Hilarious and Light Switch. So now it was all about finding the rhythms and, sorry, the melodies that didn't, um, like in a band, overplay each other, but kind of worked with each other in conjunction. That's a guitar there. I always do that in my songs. I always do the octave jumps. So I have that guitar and this bass playing the same thing. Which is kind of like a Matty Healy kind of 1975 robbers sounding synth I think I got from an Oliver pack. 
There's a guitar here somewhere that I'm looking for. It's like ding 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 ding. Here it is. And if you notice on the hi-hat, it's inferencing a snare that isn't there yet. The snare originally was like this like lindrum, but I wanted it to be like every country song snare ever used, like a very midzy like like why is that why is that acoustic ass snare in a song with all electronic instrumentation in it i just like that weirdness of it same thing with the kick too you know more daft punky things here vocal synth from isotope Put a little, ah, uh, that was my friend Rami. Who, uh, Rami, who actually wrote on uh, I Want It That Way by Backstreet Boys. Funny, I didn't even realize I said that song before, but he told me to do this. Na, na, na. Swedish in a way. And then back to the guitars that I thought I was going to throw away in the beginning, I ended up using. some doubles oh this is interesting here i'll end it with this at this point in the album making process i was like midway through and i was really down on crash cymbals they were really it just this sounded like so brash and i didn't want to use the the down sweep and i was working on this record with my friends blake and omer at the time called stay by the kid Leroy and justin bieber and what they suggested to do on that song instead of using a crash cymbal was to reverse a clap and make the tail end of the reverb on the clap the crash cymbal so that's what this sounds like and it goes really well in the song yeah not groundbreaking stuff but like so much cooler than it's essentially just like some white noise but it just impact and that it works really really well at the top of the chorus I think that sounds a lot cooler than like an 808 crash symbol, which I love 808. I use those in See You Again and, and We Don't Talk Anymore, but there's something about just having the revert. It's a Valhalla. It's an 808 clap with Valhalla right on the insert, and you just reverse it. And that little... that's from like a d50 or something it's just you make use of your voice your voice is the most unique instrument it's like a sitar hybrid or something like it sounds very uh you like you're in a sand dune in dubai or something like that <laughs> and that was basically it and then of course being so happy to do all of these sonic things and having the whole chorus in my head. I felt like I had the, the answer key to the test. Yeah. So, I mean, when I've been listening to you explain how you've been making these tracks and your skill and adeptness at running through the laptop and, and introducing all the different elements, and and that's how you kind of create these songs. Mm -hmm. But I'm intrigued with your relationship with, with people because obviously, you know, you like collaborating with people. You've worked with all sorts of people and, and you consult people too. You're, you're happy to run ideas yeah. by all the different kinds of people that you've met along the way and, oh, yeah. and who you work with. And so 
what point do you then think, oh, I, I, I'm going to involve a few other people? There's, there's always somebody. I'm not good at everything. Is the short I can't answer? Can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it really is true. I'll even get. I'd be open to getting a, a different piano player that you know maybe plays in a more Oscar Peterson type of way because I'm really not. I'm good with chords. I'm not really good at like playing fast. I haven't found a use or a reason to do that yet. But I'm open to it. You just have to remain open minded and know that you're not. I'm just not good at everything. That's probably the most boring answer that I'll give today. I, I have a way of knowing what I want, but I know that I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm not a proficient guitar player. I have the notes in my head. I have the weird way of, um, of playing the chord that is improper for a guitar player, but proper for a piano player. But it, my guitar player has become a better guitar player because of me yelling at him and be like, no, don't do the G sharp and the A together and can you just like and I've held my guitar player's fretboard and I'm like now strum it just so he can like hit the chord in the way that I wanted him to play it, playing it live is a nightmare but thank god we have pro tools in the background <laughs> I'm just not good at everything and I just I think that there's always somebody like I remember when Travis Barker played drums on track 11 I don't think that I like her and it completely transformed the production I thought it was done and then he added that real blank 182 drum air on it and it just lifted the record probably in a way that I could have never done by myself because mm. you've clearly got a vision a whole vision of <laughs> what each song is going to be and what it should sound like yeah so does that mean you also pursue that vision all the way to mixing the tracks yourself or, or are you there when the tracks are being mixed so that you know you can instruct in the way that you've instructed your guitar player how to play a chord. Sure, but yeah. be open-minded. I tell myself to remain open-minded enough that that vision might change. Like I know how when I'm home or when I'm in New Jersey, let's say, I know how to drive to Connecticut. I don't need a navigation system. I've, my sister went to school there. I know how to get there. I just I go on the GW. Instead of making a right, I make a left and I just go down the Merritt. There might be a road closure, and there I might have to turn on the navigation or ways or something and go through the town. But I'll ultimately get to the same destination. I just—it's an analogy for you. you. Just have to remain open-minded to yeah. anything that might change. Because I have—I know what "Loser" and "Light Switch" and "That's Hilarious" were going to sound like in my head. But I'd say I got it eighty-five percent right because I didn't know that I was going to want and look out for out-of-tune guitars to make it wider. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we're going to let you go in a minute, but there are a couple of questions we ask everybody sure. uh, who comes on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but before that, let's just wrap up Loser and hear another blast of the master of another part of the yeah, song. Yeah, there we go. Going to the second chorus. I'm in second place. this part in the parking lot and when you're in the parking lot and you you've thought of it are you recording on your phone is that you do you do the phone demo if it's thing good or? enough i'll remember it right. and i just go to the studio yeah yeah so that is loser from charlie and charlie you know the two questions we ask everybody who comes on Take Notes. The first one is about tech or a piece of equipment or an instrument, something that you 
can't create without or feel is vital to the process of this album's recording or you know, anything like that. I mean, it, it's been amazing, though, because as we've <laughs> been listening to you run through the songs, I mean, you are on top of this stuff. You know yeah. exactly what all those plugins and different devices are, yeah. and you know what they do and how they do it, and you, you recognize it immediately as you're running through the stems, so you know, ah, this is this. Right. Well, if you're asking what the most valuable plugin is, I think out of Waves, the NS1, the noise suppression thing I, I start my chain with almost almost every instrument starts with the ns1 because um, you know if there's construction going on in another room in my house and there's you know someone's hammering something i went through an extensive renovation that's stunningly uninteresting but there was a lot of noise happening when i was making this record and the ns1 really i just i don't know how they do it but it just takes out every thing that's going on except what you want it's quite possibly the plugin that was used the most. And uh, I'd say for physical pieces of gear, that Juno 60, the Roland Juno 60, which was not a very popular keyboard when it came out, but then years later it became more popular. It's just the, the synthesizer that just seems to work with everything. Yeah, fascinating. And I mean, you've, you've had an awful lot of experience and training and you know, you've been around and worked with lots of different people. Have you picked up any advice that you would share with other people or or through your own experience have come up with advice that you would like to pass on? I mean, I'm still, what's crazy is that uh, people ask me questions like I have the answer key to everything. I'm still excited to learn who I'm going to be as a person next year in 2023 and what kind of music I'm going to make. I, I, I guess my, my advice would be to just don't act like you know everything and remain open-minded, which I kind of touched upon mm. a lot before. But I think it's the that mindset is the reason why I'm still here. And I signed my recording contract in 2014. And uh, the reason why my music doesn't sound, I don't think it sounds the same sonically. My voice sounds the same, but I, don't, I think it's kind of progressed over the years. Yeah, massively. Um, thank you so much, Charlie, for taking the time. And, thank you. And hooking up with us and taking us through these songs on the Charlie album. We're going to leave with one more song from the record. Sure. I must admit, When You're Sad, I'm Sad is yeah. one of my favourites. And and I think it's interesting because, well, in a way, this brings us back to you. It's just piano and your voice. We and, can certainly play that. Well, I don't know. I mean, because that's part of Charlie Puth that I don't hear mm -hmm. as much. You know, because, yeah. in a way, I think of you and I think of the boy with the instrument yeah. learning the piano. And you're so involved in the wonderful world of music yeah. that you want to use all these different possibilities and you bring that in to yeah. your productions. Yeah. And this is a, a song where you decided, no, I'm just going to keep it simple. Just vocal and piano. And yeah. Is this a side of you that you might explore further? I think for the next album, I'd like to, I have this whole plan for the next album to not really use any synths as the backbone of the record, but to really take advantage of people's music, other people's musical ability to record them and record live bands, but to make it hit like a hip hop record in a sample based way, but it's recorded in real life by people. Mm. And that means like uh, less Junos, but maybe using them as texture more than like the main instrument. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, but I love this song, track eight, When You're Sad, I'm Sad. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I love the energy and the enthusiasm that, that you bring to everything, it seems to me, Charlie. Oh, no. so I'm, I'm going to be 31. I can't wait to see what I'm making at 61, which is <laughs> un unfortunately like 30 years from now. That goes by quick. Wow, amazing. 
Charlie, thanks again. And you're going to play us when you're sad. I'm sad. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. It's the last, it's the last time, oh, that's what I keep saying about us. In the past, put you back there, I tried moving on, but you never budge. So I never get to give my love to someone who actually deserves it all. Cause I turn around and you're there saying, please don't go. So I take you back, cause when you're sad, I'm sad. Baby, don't do that, cause when you're sad, I'm sad, yeah Wonder why you're calling me so late when you know